Well, now visualize the mirror peel. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, ourselves encircled by all the sentient beings, all the different realms having different experiences. Some are happy, some are miserable, some creating virtue, some creating non-virtue. But everybody wants happiness and not pain. So we're all together in that way, no difference among us. So as uh, limited sentient beings, we don't have uh, much of an idea of our potential. And when we think of our potential, it's usually in the sense of, well, how can I gain more skills so I can get more money? How can I beautify my body to find a partner? Now, we don't think of, of deeper potential. We just think of uh, very superficial potential of what we can become. But the mind's nature is pure. It has the potential to perceive all knowable objects. And it's only either external things that block it from doing so, or internal afflictions and obscurations. So depending on what we want in our life, we can pay attention and cultivate some potentials, or we can also pay attention and cultivate others. So doing so, you know, to really make wise decisions about this, we have to have a very expansive mind and not just be limited to this life, this society, this planet. And what uh, ordinary people here consider to be happiness or success So rather our interests, or we're trying to make our interests be inner development, cultivating impartial love and compassion for all beings, 
learning how to let go of anger and grudges, resentment. Trying to understand the ultimate nature of reality and the stages of the path to full awakening. So with a motivation to do that for the benefit of all living beings, then let's share the Dharma this evening. So there were some questions um, that people asked last week that uh, I'll read. I can't say I know the answers to these questions. Um, the questions are, well, you'll, you'll see the, yeah, the, the thread that runs through the questions. So where do the five aggregates of the arhat remain? Uh, if they only have one mental body in their mental continuum? I have no idea. I assume that if they are born in Sukhavati with a mental body, then, yeah, there are five aggregates. The body is only one aggregate. Yeah, and then you have the four mental aggregates. So I would imagine they would be in Sukhavati and learn the Dharma and practice it there. Yeah. When the Buddhas uh, wake the arhats up from the bliss of nirvana, do the arhats then take up a physical body again? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would not think so, yeah, because, uh, you know, certainly a physical body in the human realm would be the product of afflictions and karma, and our hearts have eliminated afflictions and karma. Yeah, see, um, I didn't ask these questions to Gandantripa. I asked other questions, so I'm sorry I don't know the answer. Arhats only uh, are arhats only born in Amitabha Sukhavati. What about all the other pure lands of other Buddhas like Medicine Buddha? I imagine that they could be born there too. I again, I have uh, no idea. Because uh, my mind is more thinking about what's going on in the arhat's mind rather than where his body is. Yeah. Because it's it's really, when you're at that stage of mental development, it's your mind that's the most important thing. Yeah. 
I, re- I heard in a talk from the Theravada that our hearts would not become an actual heart hot if they had no compassion. That compassion is necessary in that path. Can we equate that with bodhicitta? Uh, compassion is not the same as bodhicitta. Compassion is a cause of bodhicitta. And um, from the people in my Theravada friends, they, uh, especially when I was in uh, at the monastery in Thailand, some of them were saying that um, some arhats may meditate on the four immeasurables and develop compassion, um, but some don't. And, uh, you know, some arhats are, are even called dry, wizened arhats because they don't, uh, they gain serenity and a preparation to the first jhana, but not the, even the first jhana. Yeah. So there's a, a kind of variety in, with the arhats. Some, um, Focus on gaining the super normal, the, uh, the super knowledges. Other ones don't. Yeah, so it depends a lot on what they're interested in. Okay. So I think the question is more do we develop compassion? Yeah. And where are we going to be born in our next life? And do we want to become an arhat first and then a Buddha? Or just become an arhat and remain satisfied with that? Or go for Buddhahood from the get-go? These kinds of questions are, we have to ask ourselves. They're quite important questions. Okay, so, sorry I didn't do too well on those. My reputation is ruined. Yeah, do you have empathy for me? Oh, good. Okay, who has a box of tissue? I can feel sorry for myself. (laughs) Okay, so in uh, the book, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, we're on the chapter, Freedom from Cyclic Existence. On page 266, the section uh, is called Non-Abiding Nirvana. So you remember that before we talked about four kinds of nirvana, natural nirvana, which is the empty nature of the mind, whether the mind is uh, has afflictions or not, that the ultimate nature of the mind is always uh, the purity of the lack of inherent existence. And then um, nirvana with and without without remainder. So nirvana with remainder is when the arhats, it happens in the lifetime when they attain arhatship. The remainder that they have is their physical body. And then when they die from that life, they attain nirvana without remainder. And so uh, it's the physical body that, that it was caused by afflictions and karma. And uh, that's the remainder and that they then no longer have when they uh, shed that body and have nirvana without remainder. 
And then the fourth one, um, oh, but we also talked about how the prasangika define the remainder and not remainder different. And so for them, uh, the remainder and not remainder is the appearance of inherent existence. And so they say first, yeah, that, uh, that practitioners have the uh, nirvana without remainder, or the arhats would have nirvana without remainder, because they are in meditative equipoise, directly perceiving emptiness, and there's no appearance of true existence in that. But then when they wake up out of that, uh, that meditative equipoise, walking around doing their daily tasks, then everything still appears truly existent to them. So then they have the nirvana with remainder. But they, um, they see everything as like illusions at that time. So to them, things appear truly existent, but they don't uh, grasp at that appearance as being accurate. Okay, so now we're on the section about non-abiding nirvana. Okay, so non-abiding nirvana is the purified aspect of the ultimate nature of a mind that is forever free of both afflictive and cognitive obscurations. So remember at the very beginning we were talking about what nirvana is, and His Holiness was really stressing that it's the ultimate nature of the mind that is completely purified. Okay, so that so here it's not the mind isn't purified just of afflictive obscurations, yeah, ignorance, anger, attachment, those things, but it's also free of the cognitive obscurations, the latencies of ignorance and the subtle dualistic appearances that it causes. Okay, so it is called non abiding. Nirvana, because a Buddha does not abide either in samsara or in the personal nirvana of a shravaka arhat. Okay, so we know that the Buddha is out of samsara and doesn't abide in samsara, isn't afflicted by all that. But they also don't abide in an arhat's nirvana. Okay, so they don't. Uh, they aren't content to free themselves from samsara and then remain in meditative equipoise on the nature of reality ad infinitum. The Theravada system, some say that the arhat's mental continuum continues after they attain nirvana. Some say that it discontinues. Okay, so all Buddhist um, practitioners agree that samsara is clearly undesirable and want to be free of it. For bodhisattvas who wish to attain full awakening to best work for the welfare of sentient beings, the personal nirvana of an arhat is limited because arhats spend eons in blissful meditative equipoise on emptiness while sentient beings continue to suffer in samsara. Okay, so that's the difference. You know, some arhats may have compassion, but they still remain for a long time in their meditative equipoise on emptiness. Um, Buddha, you know, bodhisattvas 
uh, you know, have their meditative equipoise on emptiness and use it to remove the afflictive obscurations and then the cognitive obscurations. But as soon as they attain Buddhahood, they are busy. Okay, you think you're busy now? When you are a Buddha, you are manifesting bodies all over the place to, uh, to benefit all these sentient beings. Yeah, who don't appreciate you and don't recognize you. Yeah, you're a Buddha, you appear in common form to benefit them, and they say, who's that guy? Yeah, why are they bossing me around? Why are they telling me to develop compassion? I don't want to develop compassion. Okay? So, um, yeah, bodhisattvas have to have a very strong mind that continues into Buddhahood. Okay. Okay. So the personal nirvana of an arhat is limited. Yeah, because they stay in their meditative equipoise for a long time. Yeah, while bodhisattva, uh, while uh, yeah, bodhisattvas want to attain awakening as quickly as possible to be able to be of great benefit, and so when people enter tantra, that's the kind of motivation that they have. Yeah, that you have to have. It's not oh, tantra is quick, meaning quick, cheap, easy. I want to practice tantra. It's like let's do it, get it done with. But it's um, their compassion is so strong that they don't want sentient beings to suffer in samsara any longer than, than they have to. And so their motivation to attain full awakening is very, very strong. Okay, And they practice very diligently, and they use the special tantric techniques to attain awakening quickly. Okay? But it's it's the motivation that that pushes them. Okay, so bodhisattvas seek the nirvana of a Buddha, a nirvana that lacks the impediments of both samsara and personal nirvana. Non-abiding nirvana possessed only by Buddhas is free from the two extremes of samsara and personal nirvana. Sometimes when we talk about the two extremes, we're talking about the extreme of absolutism, grasping an inherent existence, and the extreme of nihilism, thinking that uh, either things don't exist or that they have no ethical dimension to them. Okay, Here, the two extremes are samsara and, nirv- and personal nirvana. Yeah. Some people go, why is personal nirvana an extreme? I would settle for that. But if you have the bodhicitta, it's an extreme because it, it's limiting. Non-abiding nirvana is also the nature dharmakaya of a Buddha. So remember when we talk about the three or four kayas, bodies of the Buddha? And remember body here doesn't mean physical body. It means like a corpus or a collection, yeah. So when we we talk about when we talk about the two Buddha bodies, what are they? The form body. Okay, I'm sure. I'm sure. 
what's the name of the, when we talk about two Buddha, Buddha bodies, one is the form body, what's the name of the other one? Truth body. Okay, or Dharmakaya. Yeah. Now, when you talk about uh, four Buddha bodies, yeah, then there's two kind of uh, form bodies. What are they? Yeah, Nirmanakaya and Sambhokakaya. What is the what does the Nirmanakaya do? Yeah, like Shakyamuni Buddha or ordinary beings, the appearance of ordinary beings, and Sambhokakaya. Hmm? I'm sorry, you have to speak up. I can't. It's the enjoyment body that that um, teaches. Um, Bodhisattvas in Pure Lands? Yeah. It's the the body that, or the manifestation that the Buddha takes to teach Arya Bodhisattvas in the Pure Land. Okay, so those are the, the two types of form body. What are the two types of truth body or Dharmakaya? The wisdom truth body. Okay, the wisdom truth body, which is? The uh, emptiness of inherent existence of the no the the um, <laughs> she's lost it um, the the lack of the huh the omniscient mind of the it's a permanent mind of the omniscient mind is the wisdom truth, truth body. body the nature of truth body mm-hmm. is the emptiness of inherent existence of a Buddha's mind okay. that mind. And the nature truth body is the emptiness of inherent existence of the Buddha's mind. Okay. So of the four Buddha bodies, uh, are they permanent, impermanent? Some are permanent, some are impermanent. Okay, which one is permanent? Nature truth body is impermanent and the uh, permanent and the other three are impermanent. Sorry. Okay, nature truth body is permanent. Yeah. Emptiness is a permanent phenomena. And the other three are impermanent. Okay. So impermanent doesn't mean bad. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Theravada tradition, when they talk about the three characteristics and they they say impermanence, dukkha, and no self. There, they're talking about impermanence as being a fault of samsara because we want some kind of secure situation, but everything's changing all the time. So that the kind of impermanence we have in samsara is actually part, it, it's part of our dukkha, part of our undesirable uh, circumstances in samsara. Okay. But impermanence in general is not something bad. If we weren't impermanent, we could not change and become a Buddha. We could not cultivate the excellent qualities of the holy beings if we were permanent. Okay, so non-abiding nirvana is also the nature dharmakaya of a Buddha, the ultimate nature of the fully awakened mind, fully purified mind. It is the emptiness of a Buddhist mind, 
the purified state of the nature, natural Buddha nature. So remember, everybody has, even sentient beings, the natural Buddha nature. Yeah, non-abiding nirvana is the purified state of that, not of that uh, natural nirvana. Okay, so non-abiding nirvana possesses two purities. Anybody happen to know what the two purities are? Since of defilements on the mind of that Buddha. Buddha. So that that's one body and that or one um, one purity, and that's often called the the um, the purity from adventitious defilements. Okay, and what's the other purity? Just the natural one, the emptiness of that Buddha's yeah, mind. Yeah, the natural nirvana, the emptiness of the Buddha's mind. Okay, so we have the natural nirvana right now. What we don't have is the, um, the purity of adventitious defilements because we're chock-a-block full of adventitious defilements. Okay. So its natural purity is its primordial emptiness of inherent existence, which was never created and never discontinues. Okay. And its purity of adventitious defilements is the aspect of true cessation. So we don't have that now, but that's something that we gain through practice. Okay. Now, the Pali tradition talking about what nirvana is. So this is, you know, from a different viewpoint, there's some commonalities, some differences, and it brings up uh, some very interesting points. So in the Nalanda tradition, this is the tradition the Tibetan Buddhists follow, there is debate whether nirvana is the cessation of something that once existed, in other words, the cessation of the afflictions, because the afflictions existed and then, you know, they ceased. So is nirvana the cessation of something that once existed, the afflictions, or a state in which nothing existent was removed, an emptiness that is naturally free from inherent existence, and now we realize the emptiness. So is nirvana, you had something that exists, ignorance, anger, and attachment, and that's the cessation of that, it's the cessation of something that once exists, or is it the cessation um, of something that never existed, okay, such as inherent existence. But here it means like the mind being naturally free of inherent existence. But in our present state, we don't realize that. So when that natural uh, nirvana is realized, then it becomes the nirvana of a uh, of a an arya and then later of an arhat or a buddha okay yeah. so interesting to think about when when you attain nirvana yeah are you getting rid rid of something that existed or are you just understanding something that's already there Okay, so this is a debate that comes up in, in the 
in the the different traditions. And there's different ways of looking at it where you can see it from one way and you can see it from another way. Yeah, but uh, people may uh, favor one or the other. Yeah. Okay, so most sages agree that it is the latter. In other words, um, the 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 emptiness that is naturally free from inherent existence that we now realize. So most people agree that that's what nirvana is. And remember when we started out this whole section of nirvana, that's what His Holiness was saying too. Pali says, and so this is from the nirvana, the Nalanda tradition. But, okay, now Pali sutras and commentators also speak of nirvana in a variety of ways. In some cases, nirvana refers to the elimination of the five aggregates subject to clinging. Okay, so our five aggregates under the influence of afflictions and karma. Yeah, five samsaric aggregates. Let me take a little detour and explain this when they say, the five aggregates subject to clinging. Yeah. What does clinging make make you think of? Yeah. In in the twelve links, what link is clinging? Hmm? Craving is eight. What is clinging? Nine. Okay, so subject to clinging, the Tibetans usually translate this term as the appropriated aggregates in the sense that it says the self appropriates the aggregates. When I, uh, you know, was studying the Theravada tradition and came across this, the five aggregates subject to clinging, that translation really clicked for me. Yeah, because appropriated aggregates, that never, that didn't give me the the same feeling. It sounds like the self appropriates the aggregates, but there's no self there to take the aggregates. But the aggregate subject to clinging, that's what our body and mind are. Yeah. There are Collections of things subject to clinging. And clinging is what we do, isn't it? Yeah, we cling to our body. We cling to our feelings, to our discriminations, to all of our various mental states, to the primary mind. You know, the five aggregates subject to clinging. Yeah, so that that translation to me really pinpointed what uh, what samsara means. Yeah. It's not just five aggregates. It's subject to clinging. And what is the clinging mind? Yeah. If you really think about what the clinging mind is, what does it do? It's like flypaper or bubble gum or gorilla glue. Gorilla glue, you know, clinging. We cling to our body and mind like that. 
And that gets us in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Why we keep getting reborn. Okay. So Pali uh, suttas and commentators also speak of nirvana in a variety of ways. In some cases, nirvana refers to the elimination of the five aggregates subject to clinging. So it's just the elimination. It's the elimination or cessation of something that did exist. The five aggregates subject to clinging did exist. Now, by abandoning their causes, you have ceased those five aggregates. So it's the cessation of something that did exist. But nirvana is the state of cessation in which true dukkha and the true origin of dukkha have been eradicated. Okay, so that's in the in the same line that it's the cessation of something that did exist. What it what was it? True dukkha and true origin of dukkha. So nirvana is the state in which those two, the first two of the four truths have been eliminated. In other situations in the Pali tradition, nirvana is spoken of as reality, the object of meditation of Arya's meditative equipoise. Okay, so they say that the the breakthrough that happens when somebody goes from being an ordinary being to uh, an Arya is when they have their first insight into nirvana. Okay, so nirvana is the object of meditation. Okay, in the in the Nalanda tradition, what's the object of meditative equipoise? Emptiness. So it kind of sounds they don't say emptiness. They say it's a reality. It's a super mundane reality. Yeah. But as we go on, it's with it sounds pretty much like a non-affirming negation. It's unborn and unabiding, unceasing. Okay. Those are often terms uh, for emptiness. Okay. So then uh, the next subheading is nirvana as the cessation of dukkha and its origin. So here's nirvana. That's the cessation of something that did exist. So in the Buddha's description of his own awakening, Okay, so here's how he described his own awakening. He said, Then monastics, being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeking the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana, I attain the unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Being myself subject to aging, having understood the danger in what is subject to aging, seeking the unaging supreme security from bondage, nibbana, I attained the unaging supreme security from bondage. And then 
the package, the passage goes in the same way, you know, uh, continues when I, um, being myself subject to sickness, to death, to sorrow, to defilement. Yeah. Uh, then, and having understood the danger in what is subject to, uh, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement. Yeah. Then I have attain that supreme security, nirvana, okay? So the passage is repetitive, using uh, all of those um, words that are usually uh, used when they talk about uh, samsara, okay? So the cessation of those things. Okay, so when that happened, okay, when the Buddha... um, you know, sought that, and he attained the uh, unborn, unaging, uh, unsick, un, no dying, no sorrow, no defilement. You know, then the knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unshakable. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being. So that is a passage, what I, the last part there, that comes repeatedly uh, in the Pali scriptures when they talk about what, uh, some, when somebody attains uh, nirvana. Yeah. My deliverance, my liberation is unshakable. This is my last birth in samsara under the, affliction, under the control of afflictions and karma. Now there is no renewal of being. So it's that phrase, no renewal of being, that makes some people say, yeah, when you attain nirvana, then the uh, continuity of consciousness ceases, and thus there's actually no continuity of person either. Yeah, But uh, we would take it when they say there's no renewal of being, as there's no renewal of being in samsara, of taking rebirth in samsara, but that the consciousness continues. Okay? So here, this is continuing, uh, reading the the passage from the scripture. Um, I considered this dharma that I have attained is profound, hard to see, and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely, this part's interesting, namely, specific conditionality dependent arising. And it is hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formations, meaning the stilling of the aggregates, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Okay. So this beginning part where... uh, this is after the Buddha attained awakening, then he was lamenting 
uh, you know, well, it's fine for me to have awakening, but it's so profound that nobody else is ever going to understand it. Yeah. And so, you know, he's saying, I want to teach, but who in the world am I going to teach? Because all these beings are just totally immersed in their worldly life and their eight worldly concerns and, you know, completely with their minds glommed on to sense objects. And with a mind that's glommed on to sense objects, it's very difficult to meditate. Yeah. Okay. So it's hard for such a generation to see this truth. Now, what is the truth? Namely, specific conditionality dependent arising. Now, there's a, a, a explanation we're going to get to about what specific conditionality and dependent arising mean as far as the commentators in the Pali tradition say. But somebody once asked His Holiness, if the Buddha had a short slogan, what would it be? Guess what His Holiness said? Dependent arising. So here's Pali tradition. Okay. So what is so hard for people to see? Specific conditionality. Yeah. Production by causes and conditions. Yeah. And dependent arising, which is uh, not only dependence on causes and conditions, dependence on parts, mutual dependence in terms of how things are designated, and dependent designation. Interesting, isn't it? Right here in a Pali tradition, you see this, whereas the Tibetans say, well, you know, we're the ones that really know what emptiness is. Buddha said right here in the, in the Pali scriptures. Yeah. It may be interpreted differently. That's the catch. Yeah. How it's interpreted by the commentators. But, uh, you know, what the Buddha said, there it is. And isn't that interesting? The most difficult to think, to to understand is dependent arising. Why did he say dependent arising? Why didn't he say emptiness? Yeah, why didn't he say emptiness? I mean, what do you think is more difficult to understand? Dependent arising or emptiness? Yeah, we think the emptiness is more is more difficult to understand. When you make the syllogism to prove that things lack inherent existence, what is the reason? Dependent arising. And for those of you who um, uh, were in Jeffrey's class, when we were going through uh, Tsongkhapa's uh, three principal aspects and talking about the culmination of the investigation. What was the culmination? Wasn't 
it had to do with dependent arising, but it wasn't just dependent arising. The culmination of the analysis of the profound view. When you understand emptiness from the view of dependent arising. Mm -hmm. And when you understand dependent arising from from realizing emptiness. So realizing that dependent arising and emptiness converge to the same point. Yeah? That's the culmination of the analysis of the profound view. Yeah, that's where we have to go. It's not just realizing dependent arising and then using that to realize emptiness. And it's not just realizing emptiness. It's being able to posit conventional reality, conventional unreality, (laughs) conventional existence, from the viewpoint of everything lacking inherent existence. Yeah. So, and so that itself is free of the two extremes because when people when people realize emptiness, then or the way they think they realize emptiness, they haven't yet even had a an inferential realization of emptiness, but they're just meditating, trying to get there, then sometimes they fall to the extreme of nihilism. And they say, nothing exists. Yeah, everything's empty. I can't find anything. I'm looking for my person. Can't find anything, you know? Okay, they fall to nihilism. And then some people say, well, nihilism is clearly wrong, yeah, so things must in- inherently exist because if they're not non-existent, if, in other words, nihilism is an extreme, then they must exist inherently. And that's the extreme of absolutism. So it's very difficult when you're trying to just even gain an inferential understanding of emptiness to, to be able to posit conventional existence when things actually lack inherent existence. Because the mind goes back and forth between, oh, well, they're dependent, so, and I analyze and I can't find myself, they don't exist. No, they can't not exist, they've got to exist. So if they exist, they exist inherently. But when I search for the inherently in existence, I can't find it. So nothing exists. So they go back and forth between total non-existence and inherent existence, both of which are not how phenomena exist. Okay. So the trick is to be able to posit conventionalities in the face of emptiness. And they say this, this is one of the real beauties of Jason Kappa's teachings is he really emphasizes that point. You know. And his holiness, when he talks about emptiness, always he talks about this, you know, that realizing emptiness is not sufficient. Yeah, You've got to be able to put it together with 
things still existing nominally, dependently, conventionally. And that that's very difficult to do. Is the understanding of dependent arising that you'd use in the reason of that syllogism, um, things are empty because of being dependent arisings, is that the same understanding of dependent arising that, is that different from the understanding that you'd have after you realize emptiness and realize that they come to the same point? Yes, because the, the dependent arising that you need to realize emptiness is usually dependence on causes and conditions. Okay, you only understand fully dependent designation after you've realized uh, infer- uh, emptiness uh, inferentially or or uh, direct um, or uh, directly, yeah, yeah. So the realization of emptiness comes first, then the realization of dependent designation and how they those two come together. So it's like a preliminary understanding of dependent arising gets you to emptiness, and then emptiness gets you to a deeper understanding of dependent arising. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, our teachers are always talking about dependent designation, you know, and they really emphasize how things exist dependent on being uh, designated by term and concept, okay? But you don't, so so that's pounded into our thick skulls, okay? But we don't really understand its import until after realizing emptiness, yeah? So why, we, we may have the question, well, why do they teach it so much if we only need the dependence on, on causes and conditions to realize emptiness? Well, as we've, we've come up many times through going through the, the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, we're taught many things that we only fully understand later on in the path. But the, the, importance of being exposed to them early on and having that implanted in our mind is very important. So this dharma, here's the interpretation from the Pali tradition. This dharma refers to the four truths, okay? In, uh, in the Nalanda tradition, this dharma that I have, atta- that I have attained would be... Um, you know, from the sutra perspective, the, the, um, yeah, the uh, attaining Buddhahood motivated by bodhicitta, yeah. But in in the sutrayana tradition of the Nalanda and in the Pali tradition, it's the four truths, yeah. So specific conditionality dependent arising refers to the true origins of dukkha. Okay? So it's, it's interpreting this in terms of, you know, what exists and is going to be um, abandoned. Yeah? The, the first two truths. And the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana is the standard expression of nirvana in the sutras. 
It is the extinguishment of the aggregates. The aggregates are called formations. And the aggregates, which it is the extinguishment of the aggregates, aggregates which are true dukkha and of all attachment and craving, which are true origins of dukkha. The reference to true origins implies the truth of dukkha, and the reference to true cessations implies the true path. Okay, In nirvana, all four truths have been realized. Okay, So that's how the Pali tradition sets forth. Your object of meditation is the four truths, and you know, as you are realizing them in more and more depth, then you're passing through the stages of stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and culminating in our hardship. Okay. But we can see in the Sanskrit tradition, some of these terms are interpreted differently. Okay. And then in some sutras, nirvana is said to be the eradication of attachment, anger, and ignorance. So in the, the previous one, it was eradication of the true, uh, true cause of dukkha, especially attachment, craving, and clinging. Okay, in the next uh, passage, it's the eradication of attachment, anger, and ignorance. So this passage... Said a friend, somebody um, is addressing Shariputra, who's the Buddha's foremost disciple of wisdom. Friend Shariputra, it is said, Nibbana, Nibbana, what now is Nibbana? And Shariputra responds, the destruction of sensual desire, the destruction of animosity, the destruction of confusion. This friend, is called nirvana. So again, nirvana is the destruction of dukkha and its causes of things that exist. This meaning fits in well with the etymological explanation of nirvana. Literally, nirvana indicates uh, extinguishment. In Pali, the word is formed from the negative uh, particle ni, because the Pali term, Sanskrit is nirvana, Pali is nibbana. Okay, so the nibbana is from, from the negative quality, uh, ni, and vana, which refers to craving. So the absence of craving. Yeah, that's the etymological meaning of nirvana. Thus, nibbana is the destruction or absence of the craving that propels repeated rebirths in cyclic existence. In Sanskrit, nirvana, okay, nir means out, and va means to blow. So here, nirvana indicates that ignorance, the root of cyclic existence, and craving, the affliction that links one life to the next, have been blown out and extinguished. I think that etymology, I, I, I've often heard in Pali uh, context, you know, that nirvana is called like the blowing out of the the candle that, you know, yeah, the blowing out of a candle. 
So in this sense, nirvana is the absence of something that once existed, the absence of nirvana, uh, the absence of ignorance um, and craving. So ignorance is the the root of samsara, and when we uh, went through the 16 attributes of the Four Noble Truths, yeah, the four attributes of of uh, true dukkha, no, of true true causes, true sources, um, the example of craving was given as true source. Not ignorance, which is the root, but craving, because contrary to the song that says love makes the world go round, yeah, it's craving makes the world go round. Okay. So we'll stop here. Okay, so I really recommend, you know, going over this reading, you know, the text and really thinking about it. Yeah. And read ahead a little bit too to prepare for next week. Then it makes things much easier to understand. When the Buddha says that this Dhamma is unattainable by mere reasoning, what does he mean there? Yeah, it means that mere reasoning alone without meditation isn't going to get you to nirvana. You can know all the arguments, put out a, give a perfect teaching with all the logical arguments, but unless you meditate, unless you have, you combine uh, serenity and insight into nirvana, then the realizations don't come. So it's not saying that reasoning is not needed. Okay? It's just it's not sufficient. Can you say more about the debate in the Nalanda tra- tradition about nirvana being the cessation of something that existed and the one where it's removed? So it says that most believe it's the latter, that it's the state in which nothing existent was removed. It's just naturally... F- the The... It's not really a a debate between those two ways of seeing nirvana. It's two different ways of seeing nirvana. But I didn't understand the last part of your question. I was kind of wanting you to say more about the first option that isn't favored. Well, that's what we're going through in the Pali tradition, that it's the absence of something that did exist. Okay, so that that is the same thing what we we just covered tonight from the viewpoint of the Pali tradition. Okay, what we'll get into next week is nirvana as the um, object of meditation, which we also have in the Nalanda tradition when you say that emptiness or nirvana is the emptiness of the fully purified mind. You know, there it's the object of meditation. Okay? And I think I might be having the same kind of question that she might have. And I'm kind of wondering, like, why it's even one or the other. It's almost like conventionally speaking, it's the absence and yeah. then ultimately. So so yeah. it could be both. It, it could be held as both. Well, there's two, there's two, two ways, ways to look at nirvana. Yeah. One way is favored. You can guess why when you look at the, what that, that 
thing is, is talking about the ultimate nature of the mind. That one is going to be favored. It doesn't mean that no, nobody asserts the other one. Okay. It, I think it says that. <laughs> so it says there's a debate whether nirvana is the cessation of something that once existed, the afflictions, or a state in which nothing existent was removed, an emptiness that is naturally free from inherent existence, and now we realize that emptiness. So you can debate two points. It doesn't mean that, that you know, oh, this one's, you know, this one's right. You get the golden star and a good reputation, and that one's wrong. And yeah, okay. I'm wondering if the book actually compares the passage that you read of the Buddha's explaining his enlightenment with what is in the Sanskrit tradition of the play. Of the, the, of the what? The play, the Latida Vista. I remember the... Yeah, he, he, he oh. speaks about that passage continuously about, you know, the peaceful and then, you know, elaboration-free, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and then, yeah. it's did, very similar, isn't it? Yeah, so th is there a difference in the how they're described in the, um, the Pali the, and this? The different things? I haven't specifically put them down side by side and read the commentaries for both, but my suspicion is that uh, there, there's probably, you know, because the, you know, His Holiness always goes into emptiness. <laughs> and so if there's a way of describing that in terms of emptiness, I'm sure he would do that. Yeah, but he wouldn't refute the other way. Okay. And I hear him talk about like each of the term then also includes Tantra, like each one describes a different path. And yeah. it'll be interesting to see how the two are similar and uh, how yeah. they might differ. Right, that would be good. That's a spreadsheet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we know who likes spreadsheets. But yeah, that would be really good to do, to make it from the Pali tradition, the Sutrayana tradition, which is probably pretty similar to the Pali, okay? Um, then maybe the, the Paramitayana tradition, the Tantrayana tradition. That would be very interesting to do. Okay, you two have a project. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and find the commentary. Find his hol how His Holiness discussed all those terms, okay? And we can find uh, how the, the Pali tradition talks to them too. And then we might ask uh, Geshe Dadola Geshe Yeshi for the Sutrayana uh, approach in the Nalanda tradition and see what comes up. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is what makes Dharma study fascinating is that there's so, everything is so rich if you really delve your mind into it. And it makes you see things from many, many different perspectives. Yeah. And this challenges our mind, which is black and white, 
And it wants the one right answer, the one way to see it that we just can memorize without understanding and without meditating on it, but we have memorized the words of the right answer. Okay? And that is why we are still in samsara. Okay, one of the reasons. Yeah. Okay, so we have to get over that. Do, do you see how just even studying Dharma challenges this creaky mind? And, and how much we say, well, but, but, yeah. Okay. <laughs> 